Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We're now continuing with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Rory Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't have used that word completion. Should, perhaps I should have used fulfillment as a more precise word, since um, Judaism continues, although its fundamental um, uh, purpose has been fulfilled. Actually, I wasn't planning to start this way, but I find it very useful to think in terms of three religions, not two religions, not Christianity and Judaism, just as two religions, but three religions, Christianity, Judaism, uh, I'll, I'll call it Old Testament Judaism, and Rabbinic Judaism, because we know that Old Testament Judaism, the Judaism that was given to the Jews to follow, the religion that was given to the Jews to follow in the Old Testament, was God-given. It came from God. It was um, absolutely true. It was of divine origin. And um, it was given to the Jews in the Old Testament, and it required animal sacrifice. It required the temple and so forth. And it was oriented towards enabling the second person of the Most Holy Trinity to incarnate. It basically, its primary purpose was to allow Jesus to come and bring a salvation to the whole world. When he did come and bring salvation to the whole world, from then on, there were two continuations, you could say, of Judaism. A God-given continuation of Judaism, which is the Catholic Church and her sacraments, and a man-made continuation of Judaism, which is Rabbinic Judaism, that is, a Judaism that was developed by the rabbis after Jesus came, after the temple was destroyed, after the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem, and they could no longer follow the Old Testament Judaism, which was given by God. And that rabbinic Judaism is essentially man-made. It, it was developed by the rabbis over several decades um, in a place called Jamnia. That's a topic for another show. Uh, it was developed in the first half of the second century AD. And that is what Jews consider Judaism today. And that is not of divine origin. It may have flashes of divine inspiration in it, but it certainly has a lot of um, falsity in it also, including, of course, the idea that Jesus was not the Messiah and that the Messiah hasn't come. So that's why I, it, it immediately becomes confusing because uh, after the coming of Christ, essentially two Judaisms continued. The divine continuation of Judaism, which is the Catholic Church, and the man-made continuation of Judaism, which is what Jews consider Judaism today. So, I hope that was a little bit interesting. I wasn't planning to start there. But um, I did want to start someplace else that is very intricately, intimately related to the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic Church, which is, uh, you know, that Pentecost is coming up. And Pentecost is one of the feast days in the Catholic Church that very directly uh, mirrors and fulfills a parallel feast day in Judaism. Now, we all know that Pentecost celebrates the descent of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the Church, 
that was came 50 days after the crucifixion, 50 days after Easter, actually. Is that right? I hope that's right. Um, <laughs> I have to do the arithmetic. But it's, uh, it's 50 days after Easter. Pentecost is Greek for 50. Now, the really neat thing about that is that it celebrates the descent of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Church, the birth of the Church, 50 days after Easter. Now, Easter is parallel in a spiritual sense. It's the fulfillment of the Jewish Feast of Passover. In fact, we all know that the Last Supper was a Passover Seder, and it was also the first Catholic Mass. And it, in fact, the reason it was simultaneously the first Catholic Mass and a Passover Seder is precisely because um, the Easter Triduum, the, the period between you know Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter, was the fulfillment of the promise of Passover. Jesus was the true Passover Lamb. We know that from already from uh, John the Baptist and from Corinthians and so forth that that Jesus was the true Passover sacrifice, who was pass, uh, sacrificed for uh, the redemption, our redemption from our sins. So, as Passover is the precursor, let's say, or the foreshadowing of Easter, and fifty days after Easter we have Pentecost that celebrates the birth of the Church and the descent of the Holy Spirit. What do we have 50 days after Passover on the Jewish calendar? We have a very major, major feast called Shavuos, which is, you know, as, as Pentecost is the 50th day after Easter, Shavuos is um, the 50th day. It's, it follows after 49 days after Passover. And, in fact, the word Shavuos just means sevens because it's seven Weeks and the word for week in Hebrew is also seven, so it's seven times seven, and seven times seven days after Passover, not the same year, of course, but in another year, in other words, on the calendar, the Jews received the uh, Torah from the Torah was given to Moses by God on top of Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. So just think about this for a moment. I know I'm not being crystal clear. But Shavuos, 50 days after Passover, celebrates the giving of the law written on tablets of stone to the Jewish people, and essentially the birth of Judaism. And 50 days after Easter, since Easter was the fulfillment of Passover, we get not the celebration of the law written on tablets of stone, but the celebration of the true law written in the human heart, right? Which is the, the Holy Spirit, which came to replace the law written in stone and give us the law in our own hearts. And the birth of the church, which, of course, is the fulfillment of the birth of Judaism. In other words, the church is the fulfillment of Judaism. So if Shavuos was the birth of Judaism with the giving of the Torah, how appropriate that Pentecost is the celebration of the birth of the church, which is the fulfillment of Judaism, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is the fulfillment of the law written on tablets of stone. I hope, I hope, I hope um, I got that across. I apologize for any um, tying myself in knots that happened there. And um, so before I shift off of that little uh, celebration of Pentecost coming up, 
Let me read from Second Corinthians chapter 3, uh, because it just spells out the, the parallel between the uh, tablets of stone and the giving of the Holy Spirit. So here it is. You are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So you see that parallel is being made there, right? The Spirit of the living God being written on our human hearts, rather than the Word of God being written on tablets of stone, which is what Shavuot is celebrated. And then I will just continue, because... Um, um, uh, now, if the dispensation of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of its brightness, fading as this was, will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater splendor? For if there was splendor in the dispensation of condemnation, the dispensation of righteousness must far exceed it in splendor. Indeed, in this case, what once had splendor has come to have no splendor at all, because of the splendor that surpasses it. For if what faded away came with splendor, what is permanent must have much more splendor. So that is Pentecost, being described in terms of Shavuos, if you see what I mean. That, um, again, St. Paul is comparing the giving of the old dispensation to Moses on Mount Sinai, that's the law and tablets of stone, with the new dispensation, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And if Moses shone with splendor just from the giving of the old dispensation, which has passed away, how much more splendor must be associated with the giving of the Holy Spirit? So, so let's, um, let's praise and celebrate the Holy Spirit in his splendor for coming to us and giving us his law on our hearts. And let us perhaps pray that the Jews who made this all possible and, and through whom the first dispensation came and through whom the second dispensation came. Don't forget that all of those people gathered on that first Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit descended. Uh, they were all Jews. <laughs> Remember the Blessed Virgin Mary was in the center of them. And she was the Jewish woman par excellence. And all of the apostles were Jews surrounding her. And the 70 disciples were Jews and so on and so forth. So in fact, not only did the first dispensation come through the Jews, but the second dispensation came through the Jews, the fulfillment, the Holy Spirit, and how, uh, how tragic it is, how um, the word is escaping me, but, but how moving it is in a sad way to think that the Jews through whom the greatest gift that ever came to mankind came are still waiting for that gift, are still waiting for the Messiah, are not fully embracing and benefiting from the gift that he brought to the rest of, that they brought to the rest of humanity. So, so I always try to take advantage of opportunities on the show to grovel for prayer for the conversion of the Jews perhaps out of a sense of loyalty to my own people, so I'm not too proud to do that right now once again. So, so um, th this is perhaps a sen sensible introduction to what I was going to talk about on today's show, which is that uh, er 
everywhere you look, you could say. Maybe not everywhere you look, but many, many, many places that you look in Judaism, you find the hidden promise of Christianity. And many places that you look in Christianity, you find um, precursors in Judaism and, and hints of what is to come, coming from Judaism and being realized fully in Christianity. So I was going to spend today's show talking about a very peculiar place where this also happens, where there are many hints, veiled hints of the truth of Christianity, and that is in the Kabbalah. So this show is uh, PG-13 rated, you could say, not for sexual content, but for um, tainted spirituality content, let's say, because the Kabbalah by and large, is not good news. It's by and large bad news. It's unhealthy. It's essentially occultism slash mysticism within Judaism, just like there is occultism slash mysticism, unhealthy mysticism within Christianity. You can think of the Cathars, for whom the Dominicans were formed, essentially, to stamp out that heresy. You can think of various forms of um, Christian esotericism, through the centuries, uh, theosophy, um, anthroposophy, which I unfortunately have personal experience with, uh, New Age, pseudo-Christian, pseudo-Christian New Age practices, um, uh, what's that called, the Book of Miracles or something like that, that pretends to be Christianity but is really kind of New Age occultism. And wherever that happens, it's bad news. However... The Kabbalah, being that essentially occultism within Judaism, uh, despite itself, let's say, has some very interesting veiled hints that point the way to Christianity, so much so that one of the reasons the study of the Kabbalah was was, uh, frowned upon for many centuries was because too many Kabbalists who were studying Kabbalah came to Christianity, came to the truth of Christianity because of these veiled glimpses of Christianity within the Kabbalah. So that's what I'm going to be spending the rest of today's show talking about. I have no idea if this is of any interest to any of you. Uh, It's obviously of interest to me, but that's no reason to um, impose it on you. So this is a a live call-in program, so you're welcome to call in. The number here is 866-333-6279. And you can complain and say, you know, why is this guy wasting our time talking about Kabbalah? Or maybe you're going to call in and say, oh, I always wondered what Kabbalah was about. What, how nice to have a Christian take on it. So anyway, whichever. It would be nice to get a little bit of feedback if you feel like it. The number here is 866-333-6279, which is 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. So here's the story of Kabbalah in a nutshell. It's not going to be easy to do this in 40 minutes, but I'll do my best. Which is, um, uh, Kabbalah, that is the mystical tradition in Judaism, we know for historical fact, predates Jesus. Uh, There are writings, especially writings that have only recently come to light in the last hundred years or so, including um, uh, alongside, you know, associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also in an ancient synagogue in Egypt that was unearthed and so forth. We have writings that go back to um, essentially the time of Jesus that are 
essentially Kabbalistic writings. They're, they're esoteric Jewish writings. They talk about uh, techniques for reaching higher states of consciousness. Uh, they talk about details of... Um, there are actually two sets of writings. Uh, one set of writing is, um, uh, is, is called the uh, Merkaba writings, Merkaba being God's throne or chariot that appears in the first chapter of Ezekiel, or they're called Hekaloth tracts, which is Hebrew for palaces, and they talk about these um, seven levels of heaven that become more and more exalted, which, by the way, are reminiscent of St. Teresa of Avila's interior castle and her, you know, her inner and inner and inner chambers of the castle that get closer and closer to God and more and more exalted. Uh, anyway, there are these mystical writings of those two types, and they talk about techniques for, for um, seeing into the spiritual world, let's say, for entering into the spiritual world, for experiencing the, um, you know, these higher levels of heaven, and for also details about um, the angelic hierarchies, uh, the fallen angels, the demons, and so forth. And so that mystical writing goes back, as I said, um, evidently to the century or two before Christ. And of course, they claim to go back to Noah, actually. I won't go into the detail, but, but there is a writing that, pur that purports to be the written down oral teaching that was given by an angel to Noah after the flood. Obviously, I don't subscribe to that, but I do subscribe to the fact that they certainly were around 2,000 years ago. So, this was always there in Judaism. Uh, there were two elements in it. Uh, there's something that I'll call practical Kabbalah, which is magic, essentially, incantations to... Um, get services from angels, to get services from demons, to raise to raise your consciousness into these higher levels of consciousness and so forth, to magic spells essentially, magic amulets and so forth. All of that is obviously really bad news. It's essentially witchcraft, right? There's no such thing as a white white witch. You know, any coercion of spiritual forces is intrinsically demonic. Anyway, practical Kabbalah, no question about it. There's also something called theoretical Kabbalah, which is, you could say, the fruit of these higher states of consciousness. But And it's also, there's some of it which is simply speculative, but it is basically what's called in the Catholic Church speculative theology. That is, it is trying to penetrate some deep mysteries having to do with God and creation and how creation came about and what the relationship is between the creator and creation and what the nature of the human soul is and what happens after you die and so forth. And that theoretical Kabbalah, you could say, is not necessarily bad news. Um, if it comes from illegitimate practices, it's, of course, something to be very suspicious about but there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wanting to know more about God. As a matter of fact, it's a form of worship to try to know more about God. Just look at St. Thomas Aquinas and the Summa Theologica 
and um, you know the beauty of somebody twenty four seven wanting to penetrate into the mysteries of God and the universe and creation to the extent that it's permissible. So anyway, so those are the two forms of Kabbalah. They were around from at least 2,000 years ago. Uh, they, they were always there as a current in Judaism. And then in about the, um, I believe it was about the 13th century, actually. I'll have to look up the date. Yeah, 13th century. I have that right. Um, Kabbalah leapt forward to a much more um, prominent role because there was a book that was discovered, in quotes, it was either discovered or written in the 13th century called the Zohar, which became essentially the Encyclopedia Britannica of Kabbalah or the Bible of Kabbalah, if you wish, or the Talmud of Kabbalah, if you wish. It is an extensive work of many volumes that has become the authoritative source of knowledge and discussion about the Jewish mystical tradition. The claim, it it came about, there was a a Jewish man in Spain, uh, Moses de Leon, in the middle of the 13th century, actually late 13th century. He claims to have found a, a manuscript, an ancient manuscript, that dated back to a second century very famous rabbi, Rashbi, too much detail, forgive me. Uh, he, uh, Moses de Leon claimed that he found this ancient manuscript from a super revered second century rabbi, but we're talking about the 13th century, and many people think that Moses de Leon wrote it himself, essentially. I don't want to say counterfeit it, just wrote it and attributed it to the second century rabbi, which gave it a lot more stature and authority, um, and also made Moses de Leon, uh, needless to say, a superstar. Um, but anyway, one way or the other, obviously uh, religious Jews think it came from the second century, and rationalist, you know, kind of more more rationalist-oriented stream of Judaism thinks it it was written by Moses de Leon, and, and I'm not sure anyone knows for sure. But anyway, once the Zohar emerged, it took over the Jewish world. Within 50 years, there were copies. And of course, remember, these copies had to be handwritten, and they had to be hand-transported. We're talking about the 13th century, but they had spread throughout the Jewish world within 50 years, and they became the object of study from then on to, till, until today. Uh, Kabbalah is... Uh, there is the totally degenerate form that's represented by Madonna and, you know, this kind of new age, um, garbage. Actually all Kabbalah is in a way new age garbage. It might be very old new age garbage, but in any case, there is that kind of pop version, but there's also the very serious, um, Hebraic study version that you see in Orthodox communities and Hasidism. If you know the Hasids, like in Williamsburg, uh, you know, in, in Brooklyn, the, the very orthodox religious Jews that wear the fur hats and the, the long black cloaks and so forth, they, by and large, are followers of Kabbalah also. So anyway, let me get up to Jesus, because I'm getting tired of talking about days without Jesus. So anyway, very fortunately, a couple of uh, centuries after the Zohar emerged, 
maybe less than that, maybe 150 years, there was a very major Kabbalist named uh, Isaac Luria, whose work dominates subsequent Kabbalism. Um, yeah, he was uh, 16th century. And all Kabbalism since then has essentially been what's called Lurianic Kabbalism. It's, it's grown out of Isaac Luria's work. Now, what makes Isaac Luria's work so interesting from a Catholic point of view is that Isaac Luria turned all of the interest into Kabbalah into interest in the Messiah, into interest in the Messiah. And according to Lurianic Kabbalism, the dynamic of the Messiah, Messiah, Messianic dynamic is at the center of everything, is at the center of the origin of evil, it's at the center of the divine presence among men. It's at the center of eschatological redemption. That is the end of the world and the salvation of souls at the end of the world. It's at the center of the cosmic role of each individual. It's at the center of the historical role of Israel. It's at the center of the unconscious behavior of the soul, what goes on in the depths of the soul beneath consciousness. All of that has the Messiah at the center of it. Now, I hope you see why this is really neat, because, of course, all of that has Jesus at the center of it. All of it has Christ at the center of it. Um, you know, the origin of evil has to do with the fall of man, which is why Jesus had to come, right? Oh, happy fall. Um, you know, because Adam fell and because of original sin, we have the Messiah. We have Jesus. We have, in fact, the creation of Judaism. God gave, uh, God began Judaism precisely to enable the Messiah to come. So the historical role of Israel, that is of Judaism, is of course all about the Messiah. The cosmic role of each individual, the reason we have infinite worth in the eyes of God, is because of Jesus. Everything that goes on in the depths of the soul that ends up bringing us to heaven revolves around Jesus. And of course, everything that happens at the end of time with the um, coming of the heavenly Jerusalem it all has to do with Jesus, right? It all has to do with Christ. Christ is at the center of creation. So it's really neat that Judaism, inadvertently, so to speak, this, this mystical stream in Judaism emerged, which had at its center, unfortunately, the unnamed Christ, but had at its center Christ. Because for the first time in Judaism, the, the Messiah was at the center of everything which is Jesus. So, um, I, and I, I will just add one more point before we come to the um, halfway point where I'll take a short musical break, which will probably happen in about three minutes. Uh, by the way, you're welcome to call in during the break. Uh, and if you do, I'll come out of the break and immediately look at the call board and see what's come in, which is the following is, is a really neat aspect of this. Um, if you talk to any rabbi today, He's likely to say, Judaism does not believe in original sin. Judaism has no teaching of original sin. That's a Christian thing. That's a Catholic thing. We Jews don't believe in original sin. Well, I don't know if he's ignorant, that imaginary rabbi, or whether he's lying. But in fact, original sin is at the center of Lurianic Kabbalism. Okay? You cannot, you cannot deny the existence and even the importance of original sin in Kabbalistic teaching. Um, and um, the, the most 
renowned, most revered, most famous of the disciples of Luria was Rabbi Chaim Vital, who, according to his master, quote, possessed a soul which had not been soiled by Adam's sin. Okay? So what do we see there? We see original sin being passed on to all the children of Adam, just like it's taught in the Catholic Church, right? And, I mean, I don't want to sound irreverent, but we know that there was one human soul that was so pure that it was preserved from the stain of original sin, which is, of course, the Blessed Virgin Mary. One created human soul, I'll say. Uh, and one only one created human soul that was preserved from the stain of the sin of Adam was the Blessed Virgin Mary. And here we have this caricature of it in Lurianic, Lurianic Kabbalism of this prized disciple be essentially having an immaculate conception, in other words, being conceived without original sin. So uh, when we come back from the break, I'll talk about the Most Holy Trinity and the Logos, the Word of God through whom the world was created, being reflected in Kabbalistic teaching. So, and please, somebody call in during the break and let me know if any of you are still listening and if any of you find this interesting. Uh, but anyway, with that, uh, it's, we're halfway through the program. We'll go to the musical break. The, the song, for those of you who don't recognize the Latin, it's Veni Creator Spiritus, Come Holy Spirit. And it's a very beautiful traditional chant invoking the Holy Spirit. So let's call the Holy Spirit down on us for this Pentecost and also, if I may be so presumptuous, upon the Jewish people to open their hearts to the fullness of Judaism, which is what we have in the Catholic Church. So with that, be back in a few moments.
Hi. Hi, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, obviously very, very prayerfully sung by a small religious community. Uh, actually, all of the singers are, are blood brothers and sisters. Uh, there's one family of uh, three, I believe it's three sisters and a brother, and um, their, their harmony and their spirituality just radiates through from that music. So I will continue with this conversation, or with this rather monologue, uh, assuming that it's of interest to somebody, because uh, there weren't any, any calls that came in. But let me go on with these, this hidden or veiled Christianity that appears in the Jewish mystical tradition in the form of Kabbalah. Um, I will... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go straight to the mother lode, to the, the most beautiful and deep um, aspect of it, which is... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the primary concerns of the theological or theoretical uh, Kabbalah is the relationship between the Creator and creation. We know a lot about the relationship between Creator and creation. Um, we know from the Gospels, and we know from, um, of course, from, from Catholic dogma. But let me just uh, introduce the passage, before I go into the passage from the Kabbalah, let me read the passage from the beginning of the Gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Now I'm going to ask you to keep in mind those concepts that I just read from the beginning of the Gospel according to John. We know that the Word who came and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, was none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus in his divine nature, in his human nature, in his one person, in his being the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. We know who that word was. We know the word who was in the beginning with God and was God and through him and through whom all things were made was none other than Jesus Christ. So now let me... Uh, now, oh, it looks like we may have a call. So uh, let me uh, hold on a moment and see 
if that's a caller. Uh, but I think I don't want to have empty airtime, so I will go on and find out in a moment whether that was a caller. So let me now read the passage from... This is a description of the teaching of Kabbalah, because, uh, I mean, it's from a Jewish source, but it is a summary because... Believe me, it's not it's not easy. It's not even easy to read Summa Theologica, right? Which is a lot clearer and more straightforward than anything in the Kabbalah. So, so what I'm reading is a is a descriptive summary, and it's about the relationship between God and creation. Okay, so here goes: the Infinite One, Ein Sof, is unthinkable, inconceivable, but He wanted to make Himself knowable. The deity is not to be regarded as the immediate creator of the world. He radiated from himself a spiritual substance which, flowing directly from himself, partakes of his perfection and infinity. This emanation cannot be like the Ein Sof, that's the infinite one, in all points, for it is not absolutely original but derivative, although it partakes of the same substance. It is not identical with the Ein Sof because besides an infinite, it also has a finite side. Their action is shown in their creation of the material world in their own image, in their inter- eternal support of the world with which they are in a union, and in their ever communicating to it the gracious gift of divine life. I'm going to go back through that a little bit more slowly. Uh, okay, um, the infinite one. Uh, okay, for the purposes of this, this um, what I'm saying now, I'll, I'll, I'll jump around a little bit. Let's think of for the moment the infinite one as the Father. Okay, so the infinite one is unthinkably inconceivable. Okay, nobody knows the Father. Why? One of the reasons why Jesus came was so that we could know what God was like, right? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Why do you ask me to show you the Father, he said to his disciples. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The Word became flesh, God became man, so that we could know who God was, so that we could have a relationship with God, so we could have an understanding of God as a person, which we could not have as long as God only had his divine nature and not a human nature, okay? So here we have, going back to the Kabbalah, the infinite one is unthinkably inconceivable. But he wanted to make himself knowable, right? God wanted to make himself knowable. He made himself knowable in Jesus Christ. He wanted to make himself knowable. This deity is not to be regarded as the immediate creator of the world. We know that from the Gospel according to John, right? God the Father is not the immediate creator of the world. I'll read those passages again, those verses again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that God the Father created was created through Jesus Christ. Okay? So God the Father is not the immediate creator of the world. Everything was created through the Word, through the Word. The de- and going back to the Kabbalah, 
The deity is not to be regarded as the immediate creator of the world. He radiated from himself a spiritual substance. Okay, now I know that the father begetting the son is not exactly like radiating a spiritual substance. But at the same time, it's, it's not a terrible approximation. Okay, He radiated from himself a spiritual substance, which flowing directly from himself, partakes of his perfection and infinity. Right? That's true. The second person of the Most Holy Trinity, the Son, partakes of the Father's perfection and infinity. He is no less than the Father, right? To see how well this ties in with Christianity? This emanation, going back to the Jewish text, this emanation cannot be like the Ein Sof in all points, for it is not absolutely original but derivative. Well, it's not a nice terminology in a way, but yes, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity is derivative from God the Father. He proceeds from the Father. He proceeded from the Father. I don't know what the right verb tense is. Um, he's the Son. The Son proceeds from the Father. There is a way in which a Son is derivative from the Father, right? Going back to the Jewish text, this emanation, that is, of course, the Word made flesh, Jesus, cannot be like the Ein Sof in all points, that is, the Father, for he is not absolutely original but derivative, although it partakes of the same substance, right? The Most Holy Trinity, three persons in one substance. I'm letting that sink in for a moment. Okay? The Son and the Father are two persons, but they are of the same substance. Did you see how inspired, inadvertently perhaps, how inspired this, this vision in the Kabbalah is? Um, it is not identical with the Ein Sof. We're talking now about the emanation, that is Jesus, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. It's not identical with the Father, that is the Ein Sof in the Jewish terminology, because besides an infinite side, it also has a finite side. Okay? Jesus, besides having a divine nature, has a human nature. Besides having an infinite side, he has a finite side. The hypostatic union. Do you, do you see how every, at every, every clause in this description, in a way, is a grasping or grappling with the truth of Christianity? So anyway, the emanation is not identical with the Ein Sof, because besides an infinite side, it also has a finite side. Their action is shown in the creation of the material world, in their own image, in their eternal support of the world with which they are in union, and in their ever communicating to it the gracious gift of divine life, which I think one can see as a pointer towards the Holy Spirit. The gracious gift of divine life certainly sounds like the Holy Spirit to me. So, I think this is really neat. Um, I think this is really neat. So, anyway, let me um, just read a, another description of the... Um, of the... Um, the same, I don't know what to call it, glimpse of the Most Holy Trinity. Uh, it's another description of the same teaching of Kabbalah that simply comes from another kind of descriptive work on what the Kabbalah's teaching is on the relationship between the Creator and creation.
So here goes. Before creation, the self-withdrawal of divinity produced an empty space in which creation would take place. Into the empty space then shone a new light, an extension from the original infinite light, which became the fountainhead for all subsequent creation. Right? The second person of the Most Holy Trinity, Jesus, is not only the Word made flesh, but he is the true light that came into the world, right? It's Anyway, very suspicious, to, if you ask me. Um, while still infinite, this new vitality was radically different from the original infinite light, as it was now potentially tailored to the limited perspective of creation. Again, you have that very interesting mystery of the relationship between divinity and creation that is encompassed, in a sense, in the incarnation and the relationship between Jesus' divine nature and human nature, and the relationship, even within Jesus, of his divine nature and his human nature. So I'll just go back and reread that that verse from this, or that line from this description of the Kabbalah. While still infinite, this new vitality was radically different from the original infinite light, as it was now potentially tailored to the limited perspective of creation. As the Ein Sof perfection encompassed both infinitude and finitude, so the infinite light possessed concealed, latent, finite qualities. In other words, his human nature. He could even die. That's that's pretty hard to wrap one's mind around, huh? That that Jesus actually passed through death. Talk about concealed, latent, finite qualities. So anyway, um, I did want to talk about that. Okay, so this is this is uh, kind of veiled Christianity, let's say, in a Kabbalistic teaching. Now. The place where we really see Kabbalah today in the Jewish world is in the Hasidic community. I mentioned them earlier in the show. The Jews, I'm, I'm caricaturing it a little bit because they don't all always look the same. There are numerous different sects of Hasidism and they dress differently and so forth. But, you know, when you see or when you imagine a Jew with a broad-brimmed hat, with a, with a fur hat, with the long cloaks, with the tassels coming out of the corner of their garments. Um, uh, those are Hasid- Hasidim. And, um, and they study Kabbalah. Now, the first Hasid, let's say, in other words, the, the movement began in, um, oh boy, uh, let's see, in the beginning of the 18th century. The founder of Hasidism is his name is the Baal Shem Tov. That's his title, actually. It's not a name. His his given name was Rabbi Israel Ben Eliezer, but he's known as the Baal Shem Tov. That's a you could say that is a Kabbalistic title. A Baal Shem is a Kabbalistic title. It has to do with one's advancement in Kabbalah. I won't go into the details in the interest of time. So you had this advanced Kabbalist who started Hasidism. Now, why did he start Hasidism? He started Hasidism in large part 
it was like a charismatic renewal within Judaism, that he felt that Judaism got too bogged down in being entirely focused on obeying the law, the little details, minutiae of exactly what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, and so forth. And it had lost touch with love of God, which is supposed to be at the heart of everything. And he encouraged a return to wholehearted love of God. You know, there are stories in Hasidism about, you know, a little boy who's too ignorant to know all of the fancy Hebrew prayers, but he plays the flute. And in the synagogue, he just takes out his flute and with his whole heart plays a melody of love of, to God and how that was more pleasing to God than all of the carefully recited prayers. That's like a picture of what Hasidism was about. Uh, the Hasids were famous for singing ecstatically, joyfully to God, dancing, not mixed, men to, you know, only men together, but dancing joyfully and ecstatically praising God. Like, it was like the charismatic renewal. You can think of it as a charismatic renewal. Now, and what happened? It was condemned by the rest of Judaism because so many of them were apostatizing to Christianity. Because when they became less focused on following all of the prescriptions of the law, you can think of the Pharisees in the New Testament. Rabbinic Judaism comes from the Pharisees. End of story, period. In other words, all of the rabbis, 100% of the rabbis who came up with rabbinic Judaism after the destruction of the temple were Pharisee rabbis. All of the Sadducee rabbis and presumably all of the Essenes were killed in the first Jewish revolt and the second Jewish revolt. So rabbinic Judaism came from Phariseeism and you see that tendency. And so this uh, Baal Shem Tov wanted to replace that legalism with giving your heart and soul and joy and love with your whole heart to God um, and worrying less about the pres precise prescriptions of the law, not ignoring them, but remembering that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole self. And so what happens when you do that? Well, what happens when you do that is that you're allowing Jesus to enter, right? Because the only reason... If you know my witness testimony, you know that basically Jesus made himself known to me. I mean, I, I had a theophany. I had a, you know, this, this unexpected um, encounter with Jesus that, that resulted in me becoming Catholic from being Jewish. The only reason he doesn't do that to everyone in the world is because he respects our free will. And therefore, if we're not asking him to come, if we're not willing to find out, that Christianity is the truth, that the Catholic Church is the truth. God does not impose himself on us by revealing him to us if we are not ready to hear it. When these early Hasids were singing and dancing and wanting to know the Messiah, because remember, the Lurianic Kabbalism was all about the Messiah, was all about getting the Messiah to come and loving the Messiah and the Messiah being at the center of everything. Without knowing it, they were opening the door to Jesus. And or they were expressing their willingness and their hunger for Jesus. And Jesus reciprocated by making himself known to them. So that's another reason for doing the show on the eve of Pentecost, actually technically on the vigil of Pentecost, is 
you know, really let us pray that all of the Jews throughout the world open their hearts to the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit floods in and shows them the truth of Judaism, which is the Catholic Church, the truth of the Jewish Messiah, which is our beloved Jesus, and the even the truth of the real presence of the Eucharist, that they don't have to work so hard to get so little. All they have to do is enter the Catholic Church and they can receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Jewish Messiah, of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, of God himself, every day if they want, in the Most Holy Eucharist. So let's pray that the grace of the Holy Spirit floods down on the entire world like never before this Pentecost. But I'm pushing for specific prayer that it flood down into the world of the Jews in an unprecedented way, like a second, first Pentecost, so that many, many hearts may be open to the truth of Jesus, to the truth of the Catholic Church. And why is this a good thing for you to do for your own sakes? We know paragraph 674 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, quote, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. The second coming can't happen until there's a widespread conversion of the Jews. So if you look around at what's happening in the world and you want to say, oh, come soon, Lord Jesus, it might be a good idea to also say, and by the way, isn't it time to help the Jews come to know you so that the widespread conversion of the Jews that has to precede the second coming takes place so the second coming can take place. So with that, let me close the show. Let me wish you all a very joyful and Holy Spirit-filled Pentecost and a quick return, uh, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, a quick return of the Jewish Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Roy Shoman. You've been listening to, um, <laughs> I think it's called Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. Uh, bye for now. Any creator spiritus, mentes tuos.